It is such a blessing to see each other's faces as we come together. We see the life of God in the faces of his people. As God has filled us with his spirit and given us joy in him. So what a blessing to gather again. We praise God for another Sunday. Yes, Easter or Resurrection Sunday is in two weeks. So it's not today. But the truth is that every Sunday, as we've said many times, every Lord's Day is a little Easter. I was reminded of that again this uh, yesterday uh, by uh, our, our son plays uh, upward football, flag football, and the um, devotion given during the, uh, the middle, during halftime, was, uh, it, he, he made that point. He said that uh, we, every Sunday for the Christian, in fact, every day really, but especially the first day of the week when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, and we gather in commemoration of that and in celebration of that every Sunday. So I pray that that Celebration of Easter is present even now, two weeks before we get to that great annual holiday. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 20. We'll just be in 14 to 20 this morning. We'll cover the rest of it next time. Today we come to a very well-known and much debated passage. And in fact, it wasn't until uh, recently that I realized how much debate there has been on this passage. Is Paul talking about, as we go into verse 14 and following, is Paul talking about an unbeliever, an unregenerate, that means non-born again, by the way, you'll hear me refer to that several times, so uh, regenerate means born again, So an unregenerate person, is Paul referring to an unbeliever or an unregenerate person in the latter part of Romans 7? Maybe the unregenerate Jew in particular. Many have held that position. Or, as Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and many others have said throughout church history, is Paul talking about a believer a regenerate person, as we read these last verses of chapter 7. So very well known, very high regarded, very orthodox interpreters have come to different opinions on this passage. It has been a debatable, difficult passage throughout the history of the church. Well, my own assessment of this text, which we'll look at in more detail later or here in a moment, leads me to the conclusion that Paul is, in fact, describing a believer's struggle with sin at the end of Romans 7. And I'm not just saying that because Augustine, Luther, and Calvin said so, although that's quite a pedigree, but they can and have been frequently, and all interpreters, wrong. Uh, All interpreters of the Bible are fallible. We have an infallible Bible with an army of fallible interpreters, writers, and preachers in the history of Christianity. So you can't say this is what it means because so and so, whoever they may be, said it. But I do think this is an accurate interpretation of the text. And this is another place where you could go and I think have a great time exploring uh, the the differences uh, that exist among interpreters for this passage. So as I've said before, go and enjoy uh, and dig into this particular question. But I do think that what we're reading today and next week is a description of the experience of the Christian. This is the answer to the Christian's question, what's wrong with me? Right? You've asked that question before. I know I've asked that question before. What on earth is wrong with me? You're a Christian. You love the Lord. You know the Lord. You trust in the Lord. And yet, 
often with such feebleness and frailty and duplicity and inactivity and lethargy and selfishness and so forth. What's wrong with me? And I think Paul addresses that here at the end of Romans 7. And he doesn't just do it in the abstract. He actually says, what's wrong with me? He uses an autobiographical I. He is speaking of his very own experience as a Christian believer. So I have entitled this sermon, The Believer's Battle. And you'll see that up here. The Believer's Battle. But today will just be part one. We'll, we'll be looking uh, throughout the next two weeks, Lord willing, at verses 14 to 25. Uh, But today we will just cover part one, which we'll be looking at verses 14 to 20, and next week, verses 21 to 25. But the entire passage must be treated together. It all hangs together, verse 14 to 25. So if you would, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. This is one of the most fundamental aspects of uh, the Christian worship service. And we read even in the second century, a writer like Justin Martyr will talk about a church service and he will say that uh, part of the prophets are read and the gospels are read and then uh, someone explains uh, the text. And so the public reading of Scripture is Central. So that's a little disclaimer for the fact we're going to read all of chapter 7. Um, but I think we need to see the logic of Paul as he's going through. I, I don't want to just parachute in on you on these verses. So maybe you weren't here last week or, or you haven't been following this. At least you'll be able to follow Paul's logic as I read chapter 7 up to the verses that we will cover and through the verses we will cover today. So this is God's word. We're going to start chapter 7, verse 1. This is uh, powerful for our lives. We are fully equipped by means of God's precious word. And he uses his word, the Spirit does, to bring salvation. So if you've come here this morning and you're not a believer, listen attentively. Because it is by means of the word that God saves by the hearing of the word of Christ. So here we are, Romans chapter 7. Verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So that's a principle. Verses 2 and 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. That was an illustration. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? Verse 7. That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, 
in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And then here's our passage for the next two weeks. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do, now if I do, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You can go ahead and be seated. I hope that you can see, at least just reading through it, that this would be a passage with uh, some tension in terms of interpretation. There are some things here that just leave us scratching our heads. Uh, Hard to wrap our minds around. So my prayer for us now as we go into prayer over the Word is that the Lord would grant us clarity and that uh, He would help us to, that He would spur us on from what we look at today to continue to dig into God's Word, to understand more and more what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like to be a Christian, and uh, that we would go out and live in accordance with what God has done in our hearts today through His Word. So let's pray. Father, it is with great joy that we come corporately to you as our Abba. Lord, it's special to come to you in the quietness of our home or in our car, lying in bed at night, thinking. Those are special moments, Lord, that you grant us as your children to come and speak with our Heavenly Father. And yet, as we see the Lord's Prayer, we recognize that as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it begins, Our Father. And that just reminds us, Lord, that we are a collective people. Not a single one of us is your son's bride, but we together are his bride. We are just members of the body, but together we are the body of Christ. We are a holy nation of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so to come to you now corporately, Lord, is such a joy. And we just ask, Father, that you would Overcome the frailty of this preaching, overcome the frailty of our listening, and that you would mercifully and powerfully make your word known to us in the inner being, and that we would rejoice in the God of our salvation, that we would treasure the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be satisfied fully in him, that we would treat him as that pearl of great price as that treasure in the field. Father, we pray that our hearts would be attuned to each other as we go through the the day, as we even participate in the Lord's Supper, but afterwards as we fellowship and discuss, Lord, that we would be speaking words of encouragement to each other, that we would be 
sharing our love for Christ amongst ourselves as this local church. Father, this text is hard. and Lord, we just pray that you would just give us understanding and clarity as we come to it. That there would be a clear view of your will for us and a clear view of how you see us and how we ought to see ourselves. God, in our weakness, would we cry out to you and in our strength in you, would we go forth and put sin to death. God, help us, we pray, even now during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, is bringing together three things in this passage, kind of the intersection of three things. Sin, the law, and the believer. Where sin, the law, and the believer intersect. We've looked at what happens when the sinner or the unbeliever meets God's holy law. That's what we looked at last week. So what's the relationship of the believer, of the saved person? Now we recognize when we say uh, saved person, I grew up uh, where you use that language very much. You know, are you saved? And there is lots of truth to that. We know that a person who is converted to Christ is justified, is regenerated, is sanctified in one sense of being set apart once and for all to God. But we are not saved fully. We also recognize until we are glorified in the presence of God. But I think we can still refer to ourselves as those who are saved. And so what's the relationship of the believer, the saved person, the saint even, to the law. Today, as we cover verses 14 to 20, we'll look at two things. And so these are our two points for today, if you want to write them down. First, the disconnected experience, and second, the divided person. And that'll take us up through verse 20. Much more to cover in those subsequent verses. So first, the disconnected experience. Let's begin with the first two verses, verses 14 to 15, where we get this experience laid out for us. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Last week in our previous passage, verses 7 to 13, which we just read, we saw that Paul wanted to affirm the goodness of the law. That was one of the main functions in Paul's overall argument of our passage from last week, is that Paul wanted to affirm the goodness of the law. And so we got verse 12 there at the end. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In that passage, Paul was describing his experience in the past when he encountered the Mosaic Law, specifically the Ten Commandments. And even there, he identifies even more specifically the Tenth Commandment, the commandment against coveting. But he has there in view the Mosaic Law, which is uh, held up in the Ten Commandments. He was describing his experience in the past when he encountered this law as an unsaved man, as a sinner. What we read last week is, as the title said, when the sinner meets the law. That's what happens when those two meet. The law came along, gave knowledge of sin, as Paul described it, activated or excited sin within the rebellious heart and brought about death. And that's what happens to every sinner exposed to God's perfect law. And this is why we share the law of God with our kids. This is why we evangelize with the law of God is because when the sinner sees the law of God, there is the knowledge of sin. There is the accentuation of sin. It is excited and aroused and there is death Obvious death in the sense of condemnation before God and the enslavement that is there due to sin. This is a chain reaction, as I said last week. Knowledge, activation, death, enslavement, 
and condemnation under the rule of sin. That was Paul in the past, as he described it last week. And his experience is typical. I commented last week that although Paul is talking about his own experience, he is describing himself as the representative man in a sense. This is every man who encounters, every man, woman, boy, girl, who encounters God's law. And so because he said all of that about the negative effect of the law on the person, he needed at the end of that passage to affirm the goodness of the law. Because you would be left kind of scratching your head going, well, it sounds an awful like, like, like the law is a bad thing. Paul wants to make clear, no, the law is a beautiful, perfect thing. So that was last week as we looked at the past experience of Paul. But here in verse 14 and following, Paul switches to the present tense. And he uses language like now and no longer. So one of the things that, excuse me, interpreters have noticed is in the previous passage, verses 7 to 13, there are past tense verbs all throughout that passage. And if you know Greek and go through and read it, you will see that past tense verbs. And then in verse 14, Paul begins to describe his situation in the present tense. And even if you don't know Greek, you can see that in the English translation. He begins to discuss this in the present tense. And he uses, as I said, language like now and no longer. It appears that he is describing his experience with the law in the present as a Christian. So remember, this is the big debate. Is Paul describing the experience in these verses of an unbeliever or a believer? It appears that Paul is describing his own experience in the present as a Christian. So continuing with his positive portrayal of the law from verses 12 to 13, Paul says here that the law is spiritual. It is from God. It is from the Holy Spirit. It's another way of saying that the law is holy and righteous and good. Those two things really are synonymous. To say that the law is spiritual is to say that it is entirely positive, holy, righteous, and good. But this spiritual law, as Paul describes it here, is contrasted with his own fleshly self. As one who is sold under sin. Now at this point, some commentators point out that Paul cannot possibly be speaking of himself as a believer. And you may be thinking that as well as you read verse 14. This cannot be said of a believer, a regenerate person. I mean, how can a believer be described as of the flesh? No. Or Sold under sin. I mean, hasn't Paul just told us in chapters 6 and 7 that we are no longer in the flesh and we have died to sin and are no longer enslaved to it? Right? These are key to what we've just seen. So so how could Paul be describing a Christian in verse 14, describing himself in this way? Well, That's one of the reasons why this passage has been so difficult for interpreters. But I want to give you a couple of insightful quotes that help us to make sense of Paul's language. And what these quotes do is they help us to see that these phrases can still describe a Christian. Because I believe that once we get over these two phrases, the rest of the passage clearly depicts a Christian. These are, these are two fundamental phrases that it is true. Reading these, it is very difficult on the surface to think that what we're about to read is a description of a believer. But listen to these two quotes. I think they help us. First, concerning the word fleshly or of the flesh, John Murray writes this. If the flesh still dwells in us, it is inevitable that in respect of the flesh in him, he should be called fleshly. 
And it is not inconsistent with his being regenerate that he should so characterize himself because of the flesh which is still his. Do you see what he's, what he's saying? Although Paul is not in the flesh any longer, he still has the flesh in him. As some, as some people have described it, not in the flesh, but flesh in him. It is his flesh. And so he can still be described, in a sense, as fleshly, especially when held up against God's spiritual, holy, righteous, and good law. So you see, that's not a, an obstacle that uh, shuts down interpreting this passage as being a description of a believer. So second quote that I think helps us in this regard concerns this language of sold under sin. And this quote is from Charles Hodge. Here's what he says. A man may be subject to a power which of himself he cannot effectually resist, against which he may and does struggle, and from which he earnestly desires to be free but which notwithstanding all his efforts still asserts its authority. This is precisely the bondage to sin of which every believer is conscious. He feels that there is a law in his members bringing him into subjection to the law of sin, that his distrust of God, his hardness of heart, his love of the world and of self, his pride, in short, his indwelling sin, is a real power from which he longs to be free, against which he struggles, but from which he cannot emancipate himself. This is the kind of bondage of which the apostle here speaks, as is plain from the following verses as well as from the whole context and from the analogy of Scripture. So do you hear what Hodge is saying there? Although we have been set free from sin and are not in any given moment bound to serve it, none of us is free from the defilement of the flesh. Who in this room is free from sin? Nobody. But who in this room who is a Christian, has died to sin and is no longer enslaved to sin. All of us. Do you see? In this life, none of us will be free from the outworking of sin in our lives. And so Paul is perfectly justified in saying here that one is bound or that uh, using the language of being under sin in this way. In this sense, we are bound or sold under sin until death or glorification at the resurrection of the body. And by the way, that's the reason why as we get into chapter 8, in the latter part of chapter 8, when Paul will just be celebrating all this celebration, we've got it over there, the last few verses on the wall. But before that, Paul is talking about the redemption of our bodies, that we will one day be raised from the dead and we will then be incorruptible. We will then have no more sin. All creation will be restored. That is our future hope. But that is not the case now. That is not the case today while we live in these mortal bodies. And that is why we need to repeatedly hear Paul's words in chapter 6 verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Have you thought about that? Why would Paul say that? How can Paul say we are no longer enslaved to sin, we no longer obey sin or serve sin as slaves, and yet in the middle of all of that discourse about our identity, our freedom, our liberation, he still needs to say, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That implies that we can fall into enslavement to sin Practically, though we are not enslaved to it, essentially. So, what is the experience that Paul is describing here? 
What is the experience of every believer in this room? Answer, it is a disconnected experience. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There is a massive disconnection at work here. So much so that Paul says he doesn't even understand his own actions. What is wrong with me? This is a disconnect between desiring, as we read it, between desiring and doing, between will and action. He has certain internal wants, as he describes there, certain internal wants or wishes or desires that drive his new Christian life. And yet, in the practicality of living, he finds that he does not carry out those wishes. He's got the wishes, the wants, the desires, but he does not carry them out as he ought to. He wants to do the good things of God, which we'll see in a moment. But when it comes to action, there are powerful obstacles that result in inaction. Then he flips it around. There are also things that he hates, things that he doesn't want to do in his will, but nonetheless, he does them. He does the very things he hates. I was uh, showing my son a, a video of his football game the other day and uh, before this football game, and I, had thought, I thought I had turned off the camera and I had it down. I was filming my knees for a while. And uh, it, it was kind of funny because uh, just for a little piece, didn't miss any good plays, I don't think, but uh, for a little piece, I was filming my knees and the camera went over sideways. There, there was a family next to us and it was Really funny, my son and I were laughing about this. This kid standing there had a water bottle and he was just standing there banging his head, right? <laughs> just banging his head. And we see kids do that sort of thing and we wonder, of course, what are you doing? But this is the experience of the Christian that Paul is describing here. It is, it is this experience of, of turmoil and tension in this sense of like, what is wrong with me? What am I doing? What is happening? What Christian doesn't understand this experience? If you are a believer here this morning, you know exactly what this is like. You experience it. It is universal to the people of God, regardless of your level of maturity. Some people have come at this passage, some interpreters, and said, what we're reading at the end of chapter 7 describes the immature Christian." And there is a sense in which what we are talking about here is the contrast between uh, living in the flesh and living in the spirit. And it just shows us that in our Christian lives, apart from the spirit, as we'll see in chapter 8, we can do nothing. That is, of course, uh, a large part of what's going on here. But this is still the experience of every Christian. To struggle not to live in the flesh, but to live in the spirit. We are all left in that place while we dwell in these bodies until we are with the Lord. So Paul here lays out the daily experience of the believer, the Christian. The willing and hating are right, but the actions don't line up as they should, as he wants them to. He wills right, he hates right, but he doesn't do right. What is going on? Disconnect between the two. There's a reason for the disconnected experience, and that's what we see in the following verses. It is because he is a divided person, and that's where we'll finish up today. So we've seen the disconnected experience. Now we look at the divided person. Look at verses 16 to 20. We're going to take all of these together for this point. Now, if, if I do what I do not want, so he's going forth from what he said before, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. He qualifies that. You notice that? 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Admittedly, this sounds like a case of schizophrenia or disassociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder. Paul basically gives us two, in a sense, two entities. What in the world is going on here? Two entities, two operating bases, two principles of action within a single person. This person, Paul describes, is divided within himself. Paul himself is divided within himself. There are two players here. There is the I, the one from the previous verse who wills and hates. This is the true, deep identity of the person in Christ. That is who Paul essentially at the core, is. Notice that. This is dominant. This is defining. This I is one who agrees with God's holy law. He will say, he will say this, this, he will speak of this agreement even more strongly in verse 22 where he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is not someone who is in a state of rebellion against God. What rebel against God can say, I delight in the law of God in my inner being? We've read the end of Romans 1. We've read the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness of Romans 2. And Jesus has explained what that is in Matthew 6 and Matthew 23. The hypocrisy, the self-glorying, the worship of me. How can such a one, Gentile or Jew, be described as one who says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I think this verse really does create a formidable obstacle to the view that Paul is describing here an unbeliever. This is not someone who is in a state of rebellion. These things cannot be said of an unbeliever, not even a devout Jew in Paul's day whom he describes as having a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Some have pointed to that. That Paul could be describing a Jew, an unsaved Jew who's just going through with the law, and they have a zeal for that. They have that delight in the law. And Paul does say in Romans 10 too about unbelieving Jews in his day. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. But we know that this agreement with the law and delight in the law cannot be characteristic of any unbeliever because of what Paul says in chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Let me read that to you. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Can the person described there, Romans 8, verse 7, be the same person of Romans 7, verse 22, who delights in the law of God in the inner being? Can one who delights in the law of God in the inner being be also described as one who is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law? Indeed, cannot. That seems to be a problem for that view. This I who wants and hates in accordance with God's law, who affirms the goodness of the law, is the person whose heart has been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. That's who Paul's describing here. Someone with a new heart. We say that to our kids. We say, you need a new heart. You need God to give you a new heart. Pray for his mercy that he would give you a new heart. Who does that? The Holy Spirit. What Paul is referring to in Romans 2, 29, when he says, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. The heart, circumcised by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is referring to. 
This is the person described in the new covenant passage of Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's what Paul is describing at the end of Romans 7 when he talks about this inner being and this I who hates in accordance with the law, who loves in accordance with the law, who wills in accordance with the law, and who agrees that the law is good. Now, let me say this to us, just as we, as we pause for a moment, because I think that's probably very much needed. Um, this is a good way to assess true conversion, by the way. I can remember listening to an Ask Pastor John episode a while ago about assurance of salvation, and he described in that podcast some some verses in Romans 8 and I won't go into those in detail now but he talked about uh, that that where there is in us this struggle this putting to death the deeds of the body by the spirit as Paul describes in Romans 8 13 that where that is present in us it gives us assurance that we are saved that we are Christians that we are believers because we do have that inner love for the Lord. We do have that inner hatred of sin. We do wish to do what is right in our inner being. We delight in the law of God. Christians may become busy and distracted and therefore not read their Bibles. But in truth, you don't have to convince a Christian to delight in their Bibles. A true Christian Though going through periods of dryness and coldness and so forth, a true Christian loves God's word because they delight in it. They they are the Psalm 1 person in the inner being. That's who they have become by the Spirit. And so let me just ask, is this you? Do you even have an inner being? Do you have an inner being who loves God, who delights in the law of God? Who hates sin? Or would would you just describe yourself as just one person? Of course, we all are one person. But without division. No, No sense of tension. No sense of struggle. It is the struggle itself that shows that you've been made new. But when it comes to living out this law that we delight in from the inner being, there is a problem There is something else at work within the I. Remember this point, the divided person. We've talked about the I, but there's something else at work. He describes it in verse 17 as sin that dwells within me. This indwelling sin is the problem, the culprit. This is the reason he does not do what he wants. And he does the very thing that he hates. It's because of indwelling sin. Sin. When the willing is present, it is indwelling sin that thwarts acting, prevents us from acting. This is the flesh in us, that remnant of our old self, our inadamness that we carry around as we inhabit this mortal body. This is what we face every day when we wake up. That inadamness that we still carry around in us in our lives. That is why Paul says in chapter 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We will talk more about this battle, this conflict next week. But for now, I simply want you to see that the person here is divided. We have the I on the one hand and the indwelling sin on the other. And you'll notice in these verses that Paul is emphatic in saying that it is not the I who is doing the evil, but indwelling sin. Now that should strike us as strange. It's not me. What, Paul? It's not you. It's not me. It's indwelling sin. It's not I who do it. It's not I who did it. It is indwelling sin. He says this twice in verse 17. And verse 20, so, no, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And verse 20, 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That seems to be Paul's main point in these verses. It's divided. And who's the culprit? Not the I, but the indwelling sin. This may lead us to think that when a Christian sins, he or she is not responsible for that sin. And maybe you're even going down that road right now. Maybe you're even traveling down that forbidden path. You are not responsible for your sin because it was indwelling sin that made you do it. No! You cannot go there. You cannot go there as a Christian. How do we know that from this passage? How do we know that we can't, we can't just go through life feeding our sin? Of course, we're going to see that later at the end of the chapter. But how do we know that we don't just go through life and sin and then just blame it on indwelling sin and just press on? It's not the eye, it's the sin. How do we know we cannot do that? Well, listen to what Paul says in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. What do you say there? My flesh. It's not as though there's this this thing outside of him and then there's him. And this thing outside of him comes against him sometimes and he has to throw it off. No, no, no. It's his. It's his sin. It's his flesh. It's his mortal body. It's his fallen in Adamness at work. My flesh. This takes us back to Paul's description of himself in verse 14 as fleshly. Now you see how the dots begin to connect. Because it is his flesh, when he stands up against the law, he sees I am fleshly or wretched, as we'll see later. We are those who carry around our flesh, who continue to live in these mortal Bodies who still experience the effects of being born in Adam. And by the way, this is why we die. This is why you will have a funeral one day. Well, you won't have it. You'll be dead, but someone else will have a funeral for you. Is because we were all born in Adam. And that lingering, that remaining in Adamness is demonstrated that spiritual reality that we cannot see with our eyes is demonstrated or manifested in our physical death. Otherwise, when we became saved, we would be free from all of that. That's the hope we have for down the road. But that is not yet. When we sin, that sin is coming from our very own flesh we sin and that's the reason first john says that if we confess our sins we do sin these are confusing things to us i mean this is it's hard for us to understand how we are at the same time not a sinner and yet we are a sinner we are not a sinner essentially and categorically we are saints but we are sinners in that we are those who commit sin. So both are true. We see here the relationship between the Christian, the law, and sin. Let me finish with this quote from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. We're going to get here next week, but you may be asking, okay, so what do we do with all of this? As we think about the fact that we are now in Christ, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, that he has been raised from the dead, and we have now been made in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. We have the Holy Spirit. Yes, what's wrong with me? We're banging our our heads. What's wrong with me? But what do we do? We'll talk more about this next week, but I want to anticipate that now with these wonderful words from the Apostle Paul, Galatians 5, 16 to 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say, Walk by the Spirit, and the desires of the flesh will go away. You won't gratify them. They're there. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's exactly what Paul's saying here in Romans 7. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. We have the power of the Spirit to keep the law, to love the law. And it is by the Spirit that we are made able to delight in and to fulfill the holy law of God. And one day, in glory, in the presence of our God, with our raised bodies, we will, listen to this, delight in him perfectly. We will hate sin and we won't do it. There won't be any more sin to even hate. It'll be gone. Death will be gone. Mortality will be gone. Inadamness will be swallowed up entirely, digested and obliterated in Christ. That's the hope that we have every time we gather to be reminded of. And that's the hope we are approaching as we move towards Easter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word that you have put before us this morning. Lord, many details here and things to consider. But we ask that you would take what has been preached this morning and that you would help us to grow even throughout the week in our understanding of it, to grow in our application of it, and to, Lord, would you by your spirit just massage it into every area of our lives? Would you help us as we dialogue in gospel community groups about it, Lord? Help us to come to a a clearer understanding of, of what Paul is saying here. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to sit under it this morning. And we pray as we come to the Lord's Supper now that our hearts would be turned to consider Christ who has put away sin, to consider this flesh in us and to confess our sins, and to consider our brothers and sisters in Christ who need us to bear burdens with them, who need us to hold them accountable, who need us, each of us, to walk through this weary pilgrimage road with. Lord, we need each other. And so, God, I pray that the vertical, internal, and horizontal dynamics of the Lord's Supper would be realized in each of us this morning as we come to it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.